You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, J.T. Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I am super excited to have Matthew Pearl on the show. He has an amazing new book. It's called The Taking of Jemima Boone, Colonial Settlers, Tribal Nations, and the Kidnap that Shaped America. Matthew, I, I have to tell you that this book completely took me by surprise uh, in, a, in the best way possible. Um you know, we we talk about historical uh, stories all the time, and the, you know, one of the dangers um, that you know as you progress through time is we're we're now living in the 21st century, and the you know if we're talking about history from the 1700s, the farther we get away from those events, the the more they get reduced to kind of bullet points. You know, when we're in school and learning history and things like that, because there's just too much history. To, to cover and so we we run the risk of of losing stories that that made us who we are and that's why the taking of Jemima Boone just completely took me by surprise because these are stories that we don't uh, get to hear and and nuance that is lost to history um, I love this book so much I'm recommending it to everyone I'm, I'm, I'm giving it as gifts to, to some people this year in our gift giving season um, welcome to the show Matthew thank you so much for for having me Hank and and for such kind words uh, that means a lot to me um, I this was a a new challenge for me as a writer um, coming out of fiction, which is what I've done previously to this, uh, at least in, in the book format. I've, I've written nonfiction and specifically narrative nonfiction before in, in articles, long form articles, but this is my first narrative nonfiction book. So it, it means a lot to me on that level. And, and as, as is the case with all writers, each book means means something different to you because it unfolds as a process at a different part of your life, right? And, and a different right. a different stage of your life. So so it also has meaning in all kinds of in all kinds of personal ways. Um, but I, I really appreciate what an eloquent way that you stated uh, really what my goals were with this book, which which were um, to immerse and transport us into not not sort of a a bird's eye view of of history, but a really specific moment that to me was was incredibly compelling. The more I explored it, yeah. Well, I I definitely want to dig into all uh, everything surrounding the story and and how you came to discover it. But before we do that. We begin each show with the same question, and uh, and and we have to do that. It's 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 uh, it, it's part of the show. That question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? That's a great question, and uh, you know I, I always uh, wonder about our memories in general, mine specifically, how much we are able to remember moments as they actually happened in real time or how much we fill in those blanks right <laughs> as right. as we reflect on 
on our life. Um, and and I'll, I'll say this, I, I live in South Florida now, it's where I grew up. Uh, in between, I, I've, I lived for most of my adult life in the Boston area. Very different places, um, wonderful things about both places, <laughs> challenges in both places. Um, but, but getting right to your question, one of the big differences um, was that what, when you're in Boston, Cambridge, where I lived, you would go into a coffee shop where I did a lot of my writing, including some, some of the writing for this book, and at, surrounding you are writers. Um, you, you might know some of them, you might not, but you can see them writing, right? Um, yeah. See them working on, on a novel, on plays, uh, discussing it, having meetups uh, to, to kind of compare notes. Uh, where I grew up, and, and as a child growing up, I never met a writer. So, and in fact, because Florida was at, at that time, and, and the, the space program is, has kind of disappeared and, and maybe coming back, but when I was growing up, the space program, for example, was, was always a big deal in Florida, even though we weren't right at, at, at that area. Um, yeah. But I always think how I met multiple astronauts before I ever met a writer. <laughs> because they'd come and they'd speak to our school. So the idea of being a writer wasn't even on my radar growing up. Like almost anything, definitely going to space seemed more realistic to me than being a writer. And part of that, I think, is that as we begin to read books in school, and I was not an early reader uh, in, in any in, in, in terms of kind of seeking out books to read. I, I was a, I was I would kind of do what I was told or read what I was told, and it took quite a while, really, until high school, when I was when I was actively, uh, you know, maybe voraciously looking for for more books. But you know, when we when we read books in school, it's so often people from so long ago, people who are dead. Um, so so it was very hard for me to ever conceive of that idea of being a writer, really, until not even college because i was still i ended up being an english major but again studying these writers that i revered that i worshiped how could i be one of them right that was that was kind of how my brain worked looking back it was really once after college when i was in law school uh, and i didn't end up being a lawyer but when i was in law school i'm not super happy with my track in life or my trajectory that i found myself in um that i that i started missing the, an outlet creative outlet and and decided to try writing so you um the, the new book the taking of jemima boone is narrative nonfiction, but you uh, have written and published a number of of novels uh before right. this one um what what would you describe your um your niche in fiction uh wh where do you feel like you fit I I have written historical fiction, uh, largely geared toward literary history, uh, okay. with really one exception. Um, one of one of my six novels, which is called *The Technologist*, uh, was about was a thriller set around the founding of MIT. So, kind of the origin of scientific education, which was considered a very dangerous experiment, believe it or not, at the time. But all of the others. Um, take a part of literary history. My first one was called The Dante Club, which I ultimately did a sequel to called The Dante Chamber. Um, there's one called The Poe Shadow, one called The Last Dickens, one called The Last Buccaneer, and all of them, even in the title, sort of gesture toward 
a, a moment in time in which literature is being created, which I, I weave in thriller and mystery elements to, to kind of make that come alive. And I think a lot of that ties into what I was saying just a few moments ago as we were chatting. Uh, it's this idea for me of exploring what it means to be a writer, because I didn't grow up dreaming of being a writer. I think once I started to write, uh, part of what I was doing in my writing was was trying to understand what it meant to write uh, as as your your kind of creative outlet as your professional um, platform. And and so for me, those historical thrillers are also, I think, if I psychoanalyze myself, serving that purpose of of understanding not just a writer as a name uh, on a book that we read, but but what it means to be a writer as a person, right? And and the the and and using in, in the cases of my historical novels, um, using uh, writers that are kind of iconic to explore that. So so taking these iconic characters and bringing them to life. Um, what is it? What was that? You know, growing up in in South Florida, um, and then moving to to the Boston area, um, was there a sense of history that came uh, from from Boston that that made you want to connect um, to the past? Does I guess what I'm asking is, do certain places um, have an intrinsic um, pull that that makes you want to dig into um, to our past, that's if a that great, makes sense at all. That's a great question. I think that's that's absolutely right. I, I in, in my case, Boston was a kind of beacon for me um, in terms of imagining how we might re-enter that history because so much of that history is visible and present. I mean, Florida has uh, incredible history of the. The, you know Ponce de Leon and Saint Augustine and and some of the oldest history in in our our country. On the other hand, the history is not very visible. You're you're right. not you're not you know very often you're not sort of seeing it or walking through it. Whereas in a place like Boston, you it, it's more more like cities in Europe where you really are are feeling that you're entering it. Although the, the although Europeans would kind of laugh that we that in Boston we think of, of you know a structure or a house from 150 years ago is is old right, right. Um, but you know but I also think that 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 sense of place um, doesn't always have to be present for us as writers or readers um, you know it could be a place that's always intrigued us but maybe we've never been there maybe we haven't had access to it especially in in the last couple of years when when travel has become so different, um, and and there's lots of ways to to explore history, fiction and nonfiction. I think without tethering ourselves or putting the pressure on ourselves, um, because I think that's something we do a lot as writers um, to say, well, I, you know, I, I have to live in this place, or I have to I, I have to have visited this place this many times to to really understand it, to to be, you know, to to have an authoritative voice in in writing about it. I also think, uh, so on the one hand, I think it's, it's, it's really healthy to explore your surroundings, to let that inspire you. But also, um, I, I think we should, we should keep our, keep a very open mind about how there's so many ways, again, fiction and nonfiction to explore stories, uh, past and present. So with your, with your previous novels and, and 
the way you explored um, real living people like Edgar Allan Poe or Dante, um, the um, and 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 you use those works to to kind of revisit those people and to bring them to life and to kind of play the the what if game in a lot of ways. Um, the taking of Jemima Boom Boone is uh, is you don't approach it the same way because this is a narrative nonfiction. You are you are true to the actual story and you don't play the what if game. Um, first off. Um, how did you discover this story and what was it about uh, uh, how did Daniel Boone come to you and, and, you know, when did you start, you know, seeing all the layers to this story? Absolutely. The origin story of, of this project for me actually does dovetail with earlier projects because I entered it through literature. I, I was always curious. I, I am always curious where, literature where fiction comes from you know what what analogs we have for our fiction particularly the, our the fiction that we grow up with or or that that are kind of iconic pieces of literature um and and in in that uh arena um the last of the mohicans by um james fenimore cooper caught my eye and over the years i i explored where that came from and one of its primary influences was this uh, this incident um, that that forms the heart of the taking of Jemima Boone, which is the kidnapping of Daniel Boone's daughter Jemima and two of her friends. And what often happens is that when famous literature is inspired by something in real life, that real life event or events kind of sink below the surface. They almost get replaced or substituted for by the literature that we that we get to know, right? And that becomes part of popular culture. So when I dug into this, I found that was very much the case with this, that that the the true story of this kidnapping was was incredibly suspenseful, um, exciting, interesting, compelling, important, uh, complicated. Um, and and I became more and more interested in in sort of finding a way to tell that story. And and one rule of thumb I have in in having written in fiction and nonfiction is and and by the way, someone could totally push back on this or disagree with it. I, I'm very much not dogmatic about anything in writing, because I think each of us as writers and readers are are coming from a very different place. But my my general rule of thumb is if something can be nonfiction. Uh, and can be successful storytelling as nonfiction, do it as nonfiction. I, I kind of reserve fiction for for stories that that need that something else to make it come alive. So in this case, it really felt to me uh, the perfect project for what I had been looking for, which is a, to, to try out a book-length narrative nonfiction. You have an amazing story idea. You execute the writing and editing flawlessly, and now the only thing missing are readers. We can help you go from author to author superhero with Story Origin. Story Origin is a one-stop shop for marketing tools with a community of amazing authors working together to find reviewers, build mailing lists, increase sales, and collect feedback from beta readers. Everything an author needs all in one place from providing review copies or beta copies, reader magnets to ensure you stay connected with readers, easily distribute audio promo codes, 
universal retail links to send readers directly to the proper point of purchase or provide direct download links for members of your mailing list. Story Origin has all the tools you need in one easy-to-use site. Use the promo code ASP21 at checkout when subscribing to the yearly plan and you will get 10% off your first year. This code will expire December 31st, so hurry over and subscribe now. StoryOriginApp.com Do you have a, um, a process for um, when you discover uh, an historical character that you want to dig into? Maybe it's Dante, maybe it's Poe, uh, maybe it's Jemima Boone. Um, when you... Is there a process that you start digging into to see if there is a is a nugget of a story there? Um, and if so, um, was there was the process like that for for this book? Was the process did the process lead you to the point where you said, OK, I, I don't need to make up any story here. This is there's enough that I can dig. And this is a fascinating enough story that uh, that it stands on its own. Exactly. In this case, I think it would be different for every project uh, or every pixel of history that that you that you're looking at. Um, in this case, as I explored the the material, I found it it just it just grew in in interest for me. Sometimes you will you'll jump into something, it, and the um, the part that catches your eye will be really exciting. And the more you dig into it, the less there is. Right. It, it just it, it doesn't move. It doesn't it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't grow as as kind of storytelling ingredients. Um, in this case, it was just the opposite. And, and what I was able to identify for myself as a storyteller was, first of all, that this was often a, a footnote, maybe literally a footnote in the history of the frontier or the history of Daniel Boone or Kentucky uh, or maybe just, you know, two, three, four pages in a 400, 500 page book about Daniel Boone. Right or about the frontier, um, and what what very what very often happens I find with um, material in history is is that 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 a a, a series of events or incidents um, can get uh, absorbed by by larger sweeping stories right and 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 we lose something there uh, it, it makes sense that that happens but by by zeroing in and this is the way I, I these are the types of stories i love reading the most and that i really enjoy um taking a crack at writing when i have those opportunities to zoom in on on a moment or moments in this case it's about two years starting with the kidnapping and then following that to sort of a chain reaction of events that include um, uh, include another kidnapping, include a, a kind of outright warfare and a court-martial trial um, to, to kind of simplify it. Uh, once you zoom in on that, so rather than it being five or six or ten pages in, in, a, in a much larger sweeping work, it, it brings out a new life to it. It animates it. It lets us immerse ourselves into, into it. It, it lets us uh, it, it lets the story become experiential where we really feel we're, we're stepping into it and living it with those characters and and to get to know those characters Jemima to me at least 
always in the material that, that, that I was able to find was just kind of a cardboard cutout, a stand-in or, or, or just a, a throwaway name. And, and one of my goals with this was to bring her alive, to bring the tribal warriors alive that were involved, to, to bring Daniel Boone alive at that moment as a father um, and, and what's wrapped up in that and, and be able to, to of course, I, I have to know all I can know about Daniel Boone, but I, I don't have to feel the responsibility of covering everything uh, from the time Daniel Boone was born till the time he dies, right? Because that's sure. what creates a very different type of work. So um, with the the novels that you've written, um, you've had lots of, of practice with the with the narrative side. The you can tell a story and you have um, you know, you've honed that craft. Um, but with narrative nonfiction, um, you need to have reliable sources, I would think, so that you have enough material that you can weave that story together truthfully and um, and, and that it, it can stand, uh, you know, on its own as an as an authoritative work with with an event like this uh, that happened, you know, almost 250 years ago. Um, how reliable are those sources um, f- for this event? Like how difficult was it? to to dig up uh, things that you could trust yeah it's a great question you're absolutely right and there are plenty of times you might approach a story and discover wow there's just no sources on this or there's not enough sources on this and by the way that might be uh, an example of a writing project that turns to fiction for help right where we can infuse um and fill in the void uh, that sources of sources that that perhaps just never existed or no longer exist. In this case, I was very fortunate um, because I because the frontier was uh, heavily studied at at soon after the 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 sort of era of the frontier by multiple people, especially two people in particular, one named Draper, um, who collected materials. Um, so they were they were not writers so much. They were really more collectors, oh, collectors of letters, of of manuscripts. They would sit down and interview people. So they the this sort of small handful of people did this for for years. Um, and part of what you have to immerse yourself in in researching it is the level of reliability, right? How much do you trust those collectors? Where where can you spot? flaws and and how they're they're gathering the information or how they present it um in in kind of archival or or printed format how much do you trust those witnesses and and what are their biases and so all of this and 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 you can also build that into the reading experience right as i as i do time to time in the taking of Jemima boone where i'll flag something i'll 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 say you know, um, this likely romanticized, you know, one likely romanticized observation about this moment is such and such, right? So, so I'm, I'm still able to, uh, to include that as a narrative building block, but flag for the reader that, that we might be a little, a a, a little wary of taking it literally, right? Might be the only thing we have for that moment. So it's, it's a real process, um, first of, of determining whether there's enough source material and then of sorting out um, without making the reader do the work, right? If, if we're right. academic writers, we're, we're going to be 
doing a very different project. And some of that is to make the reader do a lot of the, the work. And that's not what we're trying to do with narrative nonfiction, at least not, not in my mind. We're, we're, we're trying to create a reading experience not dissimilar from a novel. Um, where, that we can escape into and we can enjoy and, and you know, the writer can have the tedious work and the reader doesn't have to share, share in that, but everything has to be uh, accurate, of course, because it's nonfiction, um, and, but, but can be qualified when necessary uh, rather than, than, than burden the reader by saying, this might have happened, this might have happened, or this might have happened. We don't know. And this, right, then we're taken out of the story. So it, it still falls to the writer to make those choices. Matthew, as the writer, um, when you're tackling a project like The Taking of Jemima Boone, as opposed to a project like The Dante Club or even The Technologist, um, what is the the preparation phase? Um, how does it differ between these books? I would imagine, and you correct me if I'm wrong, that when you're writing a book like Jemima Boone, um, there would be a lot of work uh, in the pre-writing phase, a lot of gathering of of you know uh, sources and and things like that, and then you kind of figure out where that narrative thread takes you, um, as opposed to the Dante Club or the Technologist. Um, you know, maybe the writing process is different for a book like that. How how do they differ? I it's a it's a really interesting question. For for me, my my novels have always been research based. So and I always loved the research. So there's there's plenty of people, uh, understandably, who are not particularly happy to um, to be drowning in research. Right. <laughs> um, I I always really liked that process and and probably did much more than I needed to. Um, in terms of gathering material for my novel. So I think that was that in, in, in my particular instance, that was really great preparation as I started to include more and more narrative, more and more nonfiction writing. Um, I would I, so I could I could carry over the narrative skills, as you mentioned, um, but also I already had a head start in, in how to um, to collect and keep track of, the actual research now where it became where where it did uh, become noticeably different was that i i is that in nonfiction you have to keep track of where every uh every few words are coming from like what source is providing you the information that is justifying and verifying each part of these sentences right and it, it, one sentence might have four sources embedded in it right so it was actually it, it, on a logistical level one thing i had to adjust to because in fiction there's no apparatus right you're not unless you're writing some kind of avant-garde novel there's no end notes there's no footnotes there's no right bibliography so even though i was always very conscientious about research for my fiction and about making historical fiction as authentic as i could be not that you have to um, you can write historical fiction that that does not do that, but that's that was what I enjoyed reading and writing. Sure. Um, but you didn't have to keep track of it. You know, the, there was no obligation that you know on page fifty three of this novel what your source is for you know how much it costs to to uh, eat at this restaurant in eighteen fifty nine. Right? No, no. Someone might ask you, but you have no responsibility to that. And you might want to keep track for yourself. With nonfiction, you have to keep track of every single little dot. So the, the reason that's so hard is that, as you know, um, when we write, 
we're not writing our final draft, right? <laughs> when right. we begin to write. So how do you how do you keep track of those things and still allow your writing, which is always a fluid process, the 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 actual craft of the writing, as as fluid in nonfiction as it is in fiction, to you know, of how you're gonna communicate this, how you're gonna structure this. I'm gonna move this part of this sentence into this. So so it, it's kind of, you know, minor um sort of side note, I guess, but but it that gave me some headaches. So now that the new book is uh, the, the writing phase is over, all the editing is done, um, the the publication phase is done. It's now out uh, and available to the world, and you have turned your sights to the next project. Do you find yourself uh, wanting to do another uh, narrative nonfiction project? Did, did this excite you and kind of whet your appetite for things to come, or are you ready to? dive back into fiction thanks for asking it's, it's something i think about a lot um i i actually have felt a shift toward nonfiction. i i never want to rule out writing more fiction but i've, I've felt the shift for a while of of my own my brain kind of pointing itself more and more toward nonfiction. um i my wife actually published her first book last year, which was narrative nonfiction, um, which she discovered in doing her family research, uh, a book called Terror to the Wicked about a trial in in colonial uh, Plymouth Colony in Massachusetts, a murder trial, sort of the first murder trial. Um, and, and I now have co-founded and, and, and I edit a digital magazine um, with, with my co-founder, Greg Nichols, called Truly Adventurous. And Truly Adventurous uh, is, as, it, as the title sounds, is a home and a platform for narrative nonfiction. I've written a couple stories. We've, 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 done, um, we've been around for about two and a half years, but for the most part, it's a platform for other writers. And I'm one of the editors and, and one of the people who looks for the writers, looks for the stories, um, matches those up, works with the writers. Um, so I, I, I think recently I've, I've kind of um, saturated myself in nonfiction, and, and probably that's the direction I'll, I'll be going in for a while. Nice, nice. I can't wait to see what's coming next. Um, Matthew, if people are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you're up to, uh, where can they connect with you online? Sure. Uh, my, my website is matthewpearl.com, so easy to remember. And I'm also Matthew Pearl on Twitter. I, I'm not on. I'm not a huge social media person, um, which is one of my many flaws, probably. Uh, it's, it's, it's or not. Depending. I don't know. More and more, it's something that's expected of writers, and, yeah. and it can be healthy in so many ways. I, I, you know, I think there's ways in which it it can be oppressive, and maybe that's just stating the obvious, and, and maybe the, the obvious kind of challenge with with social media um but i could definitely be be found there too and I, and i'd love your your listeners to also check out truly adventurous where again a lot of my work goes goes into that um and you know it's it's one of the one of the exciting things about nonfiction is uh is that there's always more stories to find that are out there whether they happened hundreds of years ago or or yesterday Absolutely. Well, we will put links in the show notes of this episode uh, where they can connect with you at your website or Truly Adventurous or uh, all those great places that we talked about. The Taking of Jemima Boone, when you're hearing this, is available everywhere. You can grab it uh, in, you know, physical paper copy if you, uh, it, you know, 
want to hold it in your hand and then put it on your shelf for everyone to see or Kindle edition. Um, is, is it also going to be an audiobook, Matthew? Yes, it is. Excellent. Excellent. Well, we'll put links where you can grab it in any format that you like in the show notes of this episode. Matthew, this has been so much fun chatting. I love the book. I'm telling everyone about it. Thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Thank you, Hank. This was a pleasure. Now stay tuned for an audiobook excerpt from Richard Glebe's The Jason Crane Series. No use crying over spilled milk. Eliza hated that cliché. She'd grown up a cliché. Her life a bowl of cherries, duck soup, easy as pie, child's play behind a white picket fence. Mother had been the Wyatt Earp of clichés, firing them off quick draw. A rotten apple spoils the barrel. Smile and the world smiles with you. Every dog has his day. Children should be seen and not heard. She believed them all, particularly this last. Eliza obliged, preferring to wander the streets of Wytheville, Virginia, on her own lonesome terms. The divorce left Laura a spinster librarian, and one false step on icy stairs left her an invalid as well. The accident happened on New Year's Eve, 1950. Laura had just locked the doors of Wytheville Public Library. We must make black-eyed peas tomorrow, Laura had been thinking, with turnip greens. That ensured a lucky new year, and if you swept some money over your threshold, a prosperous one, too. She loved those old southern traditions. She looked both ways, checking for negroes, but turned to heel on the icy marble of the stairs and fell into the bushes below, breaking the long bones in both legs. Eliza had taken advantage of her mother's absence. She'd lost her virginity that same night. She'd swept Ron Partridge over her threshold, initiating her own beloved tradition. She was nursing a hangover, giddily reliving the event. But around 8.30, she realized that her mother had not come down to breakfast. She checked her mother's bedroom, found it empty, took the bus down to the library, climbed the high stairs, knocked hard on the library doors, and heard a groan below. Laura lay under the William Penn Barbary bushes, below the yellow-trimmed windows of the non-fiction section. Her white stockings ran Jezebel red with blood. Sweat and melted snow had soaked her blouse, and her gray forehead blazed. The broken bones didn't kill Laura Merrick. She lay in the hospital, wheezing, her legs mortared up in casts. She had few visitors after the first week. Her church group was glad to fret over a poor thing for a day or two, but they trickled away when Laura had the bad manners to linger. On Valentine's Day, as her mother slept, Eliza drew big, sloppy hearts on her casts. Laura harumphed when she woke and insisted on keeping her legs hidden beneath blankets afterwards. But in late March, something miraculous happened. Laura's self-control dropped. She ranted at nurses, spit at doctors, swore like a Navy pilot dropping F-bombs on Hiroshima. She had dementia, the doctors said. Eliza decided that her mother had just stopped believing her own bullshit. The spells continued over the next two weeks, and Eliza enjoyed her mother's company for the first time. They swapped bawdy jokes, ogled the handsome interns, and chattered like best girlfriends late into the evening. They had long conversations, and Laura spoke her own mind in her own words about things that mattered to her. It broke Eliza's heart when the prim, condescending librarian returned. Laura hardly acknowledged anything that had passed between them. 
the clichés returned. You can't have your cake and eat it too. A leopard doesn't change its spots. Nothing is certain except death and taxes. This last proved true. On April 15th, Laura Merrick marked her Bible with a tongue depressor, set it on her nightstand, leaned back against the headboard, and coughed blood down the front of her nightdress. Eliza found her that way, dead as the proverbial doornail, and yes, the blood was thicker than water, just as her mother had always said. Much thicker than water, in fact, perhaps as thick as molasses in January. <laughs>